at York, now Toronto, in Upper Canada, a very different man was meanwhile preparing to checkmate Hull's northwestern army of Americans, which was threatening to invade the province. Isaac Brock was not only a soldier born and bred, but alone among the leaders on either side, he had the priceless gift of genius. He was now forty-two, having been born in Guernsey on October 6, 1769, in the same year as Napoleon and Wellington. Like the Wolves and the Montcalms, the Brocks had followed the noble profession of arms for many generations. Nor were the Delices, his mother's family, less distinguished for the number of soldiers and sailors they had been giving to England ever since the Norman conquest. Brock himself, when only twenty-nine, had commanded the forty-ninth foot in Holland under Sir John Moore, the future hero of Corona, and Sir Ralph Abercrombie, who was so soon to fall victorious in Egypt. Two years after this, he had stood beside another and still greater man at Copenhagen, mighty Nelson, who there gave a striking instance of how a subordinate inspired by genius can win the day by disengaging the over-caution of a commonplace superior. We may be sure that when Nelson turned his blind eye on Parker's signal of recall, the lesson was not thrown away on Brock. For ten long years of inglorious peace, Brock had now been serving on in Canada, while his comrades in arms were winning distinction on the battlefields of Europe. It was partly due to his own excellence. He was too good a man to be spared after his first five years were up in 1807. For the era of American hostility had then begun. He had always been observant, but after 1807 he had redoubled his efforts to learn Canada and learn her thoroughly. People and natural resources, products and means of transport, armed strength on both sides of the line, and the best plan of defense, all were studied with unremitting zeal. In 1811, he became the acting lieutenant governor and commander of the forces in Upper Canada, where he soon found out that the members of parliament returned by the American boat were bent on thwarting every effort he could make to prepare the province against the impending storm. In 1812, on the very day he heard that war had been declared, 
He wished to strike the unready Americans hard, and instantly, at one of the three accessible points of assembly, Fort Niagara at the upper end of Lake Ontario, opposite Fort George, which stood on the other side of the Niagara River, Sackett's Harbor at the lower end of Lake Ontario, thirty-six miles from Kingston, and Ogdensburg on the upper St. Lawrence, opposite Fort Prescott. But Sir George Prevost, the Governor General, was averse from an open act of war against the northern states because they were hostile to Napoleon and in favor of maintaining peace with the British. While Brock himself was soon turned. From his purpose, by news of Hull's American invasion further west, as well as by the necessity of assembling his own throbbing little parliament at York, the nine days' sessions from July twenty-seventh to August fifth yielded the indispensable supplies, but the suspension of the Happy's. Corpus Act, as a necessary war measure, was prevented by the disloyal minority, some of whom wished to see the British defeated, and all of whom were ready to break their oath of allegiance whenever it suited them to do so. The patriotic majority, returned by the votes United Empire loyalists and all the others. Who were British-born and bred, issued an address that echoed the appeal made by Brock himself in the following words: "We are engaged in an awful and eventful contest. By unanimity and dispatch in our councils and by vigor in our operations, we may teach the enemy this lesson." That a country defended by free men, enthusiastically devoted to the cause of their king and constitution, can never be conquered. On August fifth, being at last clear of his immediate duties as a civil governor, Brock threw himself ardently into the work of defeating Hull. Who had crossed over into Canada from Detroit on July the eleventh and issued a proclamation at Sandwich the following day. This proclamation shows admirably the sort of impression which the invaders wished to produce on Canadians. The United States are sufficiently powerful. To afford you every security consistent with their rights and your expectations, I tender you the invaluable blessings of civil, political, and religious liberty. The arrival of an army of French must be hailed by you with a cordial welcome. You will be emancipated from tyranny and oppression. And restored to the dignified station of free men. 
if contrary to your own interests and the just expectation of my country you should take part in the approaching contest you will be considered and treated as enemies and the horrors and calamities of war will stalk before you if the barbarous and savage policy of great britain be pursued and the savages let loose to murder our citizens and butcher our women and children this war will be a war of extermination the first stroke with the tomahawk the first attempt with the scalping knife will be the signal for one indiscriminate scene of desolation no white man found fighting by the side of an indian will be taken prisoner instant destruction will be his lot this was war with a vengeance but howe felt less confidence than his proclamation was intended to display he knew that while the american government had been warned in january about the necessity of securing the naval command of lake erie no steps had yet been taken to secure it ever since the beginning of march when he had written a report based on his seven years experience as governor of michigan he had been gradually learning that eustace was bent on acting in defiance of all sound military advice in april he had accepted his new position very much against his will and better judgment in may he had taken command of the assembling militiamen at dayton in ohio in june he had been joined by a battalion of inexperienced regulars and now in july he was already feeling the ill effects of having to carry on what should have been an amphibious campaign without assistance of any proper force afloat for on the second ten days before he issued his proclamation at sandwich lieutenant rollet and enterprising french canadian officer in the provincial marine had cut his line of communication along the detroit and had taken an american schooner which contained his official plan of campaign besides a good deal of baggage and stores